welcome to this Royal Irish Academy podcast on climate and society in Ireland. I'm your host, Jill Plunkett, and this is a series of four podcasts exploring the long view of climate change by interviewing the authors of Climate and Society in Ireland. We talk about hunter-gatherers, disease, poetry, weather events, and consider our future vulnerabilities. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Bruce Campbell, Professor Emeritus at the School of Natural Environment, Queen's University, Belfast, and Francis Ludlow, Associate Professor at the School of History and Humanities in Trinity College, Dublin. You're both very welcome. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Um, Today we're going to talk about climate disease and society in late medieval Ireland, your chapter in the recent Royal Irish Academy um, volume on climate and society. Um, But before we begin, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your backgrounds. Bruce? Oh, ask me about my background. My background's a little complicated. Um, I'm uh, known as a professor of medieval economic history, but my undergraduate training was in geography and my PhD was on a medieval topic, but done in the Cambridge Geography Department. And I came to Queen's and taught historical geography at Queen's for, I think, about 16 years before I moved to the economic history department here. And it's as an economic historian that I am known. Um, But because if you're a medievalist, you come up against events like climate change and the Black Death, that led me to become interested in uh, environmental history. So I'm known now amongst uh, as a bit of an environmental historian. So I'm a a bit like a chameleon. I keep changing colour as I go through time. Francis? It's great to have the freedom to do that, actually. But um, yeah, so as an undergrad, I I did geography and economics jointly. Um, But I was always doing sort of economic type history and historical type geography, um, or more emphasizing those. So I suppose as natural, I eventually would end up in a history department. Um, And you would call me now a climate historian, I guess. Um, Or if I'm doing slightly more sciencey type stuff in any given paper, it would be historical climatologist. yeah, so I, I, you could still call me a rogue geographer, maybe, um, if you wanted. That's okay as well. But yeah, so I'm climate historian. That's the most comfortable label for me at the moment, in any case. Yeah. I often change my label depending on who I'm talking to. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm an archaeologist in some groups and a paleoecologist. Yeah, and... yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah, I think that's nice to have that, that flexibility, actually. Yeah. yeah, if I give a paper more to a group of scientists, I will be automatically usually introduced as... Um, a climatologist or something like that. No, 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 it's the other way around. They'll, int- they'll see me as an historian and they'll introduce me as an historian. But if I give a paper to more mainly historians, then they'll introduce me as a geographer or as a climatologist, perhaps. So we're going to delve um, a little bit further back in time in today's interview. What makes this period, um, the, the period between 1000 and 1500 of the common era, um, of interest and relevance to those concerned with climate change today? Bruce? Have at it, if you like. OK. Uh, there are tons of reasons why um, it's interesting and relevant to concerns people have today. Um, and I'll, I'll start off by giving one, and then Frank can give, a, give another one. Um, uh, a lot of concern today is about what people call climate warming. Uh, There are lots of other things going on than just climate warming, but that's how a lot of politicians and the general public think of it. And there's been a concern, therefore, is 
the climate today warmer than in the past. And there's been a lot of research to try and establish um, how warm has it been in previous warm periods. And the last period of major warmth in the Northern Hemisphere was around about 1000 AD, at the beginning of the period that Frank and I discuss in our chapter. Um, and so there's been a lot of comparison back in time and pushing time series back in time to about 1000 AD. And those time series run through the period from 1000 to 1500. And you can you can then see the temperatures changing in the northern hemisphere and on planet Earth over that period of time. So uh, it's 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 interesting because it gives a comparison with the situation in the world today, uh, and you can see uh, what the world was like, what the northern hemisphere was like, what Ireland was like when we last had significant warmths about a thousand years ago. I really would like to ask. And either of you could answer this. What was driving climate change back then? Yeah, well, that's very complex, obviously. Um, I think it's pretty much the same mix as what's driving it today um, in terms of at least the atmospheric composition of, of greenhouse gases, land cover and the type and, and, and change in that. Solar forcing, absolutely. Uh, especially volcanic forcing, at least for me. Um and all sorts of internal variability, you know, mediated by these sort of longer scale um, ocean atmospheric cycles, like the AMO and, and so on. I'm often struck, and I, I think we often hear this from politicians, that we need to stop climate change. And many people may not be aware that climate change is always happening, always has been happening, and we can't stop climate change um, because we've got natural climate variability. The climate changes whether we're here on the planet or not. Um, and I think many people will really be very aware of the fact that there were major swings in climate in the past. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, the, the climate has been in a, a state of dynamic equilibrium. Even when you have periods of relative stability, it's a dynamic stability that exists. And I'm always having to explain to people that the climate is changing because the climate has always been changing. And it's changing because it's complex. Uh, it's a very, very difficult thing to properly understand. And I'm fairly sure in 20 years' time, scientists will have a lot better insights into the period that Frank and I have written about that we currently have now. We're beginning to see what was going on, but knowledge is going to change spectacularly and we're going to have much, much better insights. So how do we know what we know? Well, in terms of what was driving the, the climate change or what the climate change was itself, they're often linked, I guess, because the same proxies can tell you a bit of both. But well, Tell us about the climate change first. Well, it's, we have all these proxies, uh, among which I would certainly include written evidence, and that was sort of what I specialise in, or at least to begin with, pulling evidence of what was happening to climate um, out of written records. But then you have also things like tree rings, um, and we know the annual growth widths of, of most species, at least in temperate regions, um, pretty well corresponds to the weather that was, that was happening in a given growing season. Um, you have other things that are telling you about climate through teleconnections and uh, or preserving climate related processes um, or other processes that influence climate. So the idea here would be ice cores. And in your annual layers of snowfall in Greenland, for example, you get a, a sample of the atmospheric composition, how much carbon 
uh, dioxide was in the atmosphere in a given year, how much sulfate was in the atmosphere that might have been ejected there, injected into the atmosphere by volcanic eruption, for example, and so on. So there's a hu- massive diversity of, of, of ways we can tell, either from human records or these natural proxies. And I suppose I've looked more at these high-resolution proxies like the tree rings and the ice cores. And one of the beauties of the paper, which was that we were able to sort of combine those with these these sort of more low-frequency signal proxies like speleothems, which Bruce had, had looked at much more than I had. Um, today. Do you want to tell us about those? Uh, well, uh, what I would add to that is um, what strikes me as somebody who spent his whole career working in archives and reading documents is the extraordinary ingenuity of my scientific colleagues in, in not only um, extracting information, but realizing that information can be extracted from things that I would have never occurred to me you could yield uh, climate evidence. So um, um, uh, stalactites, stalagmites in, in, in caves from which you can get annual precipitation records. I mean, I don't know what genius realized that. There's a particular um, uh, shellfish in the North Sea, which has uh, revealed evidence of um, deposits of that have been analyzed to show changes in temperatures in the North Sea. An algae deposited on the ocean shelf off off Iceland has been used to reconstruct the extent of sea ice around the coasts of Iceland. I mean, this is really difficult to get at. Somebody had to get the money to go out in a ship to take the cores, to take it back to a lab, to take the information out um, and to then sort out all the statistics to get these signals. And it is remarkable what is coming out. Um, and and um, I'm happy in my archive. It's more straightforward and it's cheaper. And that's one of the advantages that the historian has, that when we have the records, we can get the information at much lower cost than what is entailed the, the, uh, in, in extracting the information that is out there in these natural archives. Are there any issues with it? How do we know our reconstructions from the natural archives are accurate? Well, we know that they're all, I guess, inaccurate to some degree. You know, there's different different forms of uncertainty in terms of the dating of, of events or processes in, in all these natural archives. Um, but there's similar issues with the written evidence as well. But the, the real thing that you can do is, is intercomparison with them all. You know, um, something like the, the weather events in the Irish Annals, the records of droughts, you know, spanning over a thousand years or more, they're independent to what is recorded in the Irish Oaks, for example. But when you compare them both, you see that they line up pretty well. And not in every case. And there are interesting reasons why they might not. Um, but when you look at them all systematically, you see that there's there's quite a comparison here, quite a match. And that's very reassuring. Um, and you can do that with all sorts of different uh, sources, basically. So you're combining the sciences and the humanities, you're bringing them well, together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There was a celebrated paper about the ice cores because there's been a lot of debate about the accuracy of the, the ice cores um, going back in time because if you go back from the present and there's an error, the errors compound themselves the further back in time you go. So so this, this, this breakthrough paper redated the information coming out of the ice cores by calibrating it against tree rings and calibrating it also against written records to make sure that all the dates line up because, I mean, what the scientists do is fundamentally historical. 
the most important thing is getting the chronology right to begin with. You know, if you're going to have a, a cause and effect, the cause should come before the effect. <laughs> so sorting out the dates, which is, you know, what historians basically do is what the scientists are having to do and cross checking. Is the is the really important is the really important part. So the more information we have, the more confident we become in it because we can cross check this type of evidence against that type of evidence, and you're constantly uh, having to revise your thinking. You cannot be dogmatic about any of this. You have to be open-minded and be prepared to shift your ground as better evidence and better dates come along. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Currently working on a paper on that at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the not Vesuvius paper. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's a great example of it. Mm-hmm. You know. So tell me a little bit more about the Irish Annals. I mean, one of the most interesting things is that they're not very well known beyond, beyond Ireland, um, even still, even by chronicler or people who study chronicles and annals. Um, despite the fact that they've got this great span or this continuity from, you know, there's a bit of debate about when they first begin to record events in a sort of contemporary sense and how much backfilling there was and drawing material from the Bible or other continental chronicles. But I would say there's genuine contemporary events preserved within the Irish Islands from certainly the 6th century and maybe even parts of the 5th century. And then it continues um, to the 17th century, you know before the, the sort of centres of recording were disrupted by, by plantations and so on. So we've got this remarkable span of time where you have effectively every year um, something is being reported for that year. You still have to do your due diligence and, and assess that for reliability and so on, but it's a remarkable span of time to have a, a, a consistent record, more or less quite, quite consistent for historical sources in any case. This isn't touched on in your questions, but I think you you bring it, Bruce. You bring in a different set of written evidence um, from the period as well. I bring in a different set of evidence, but I'm going to just comment. Uh, Frank is too modest a man um, uh, about the annals. The annals are truly remarkable because they cover a thousand years on an annual basis. There was almost no other type of historical record with that kind of chronological span. I mean, the Irish material is truly remarkable, and it does deserve to be. Um, to be better known and more fully utilised. Um, for Ireland, we have a, an oak dendrochronology that covers 8,000 years. The longest continual, continuous annual run of records I have as an economic historian covers 800 years. And that is the English price series that begins in the late 12th century and comes up to the present day on an annual basis. You will not get a continuous annual series longer than about 800 or 1,000 years. So the Irish annals are remarkable. They cover 1,000 years on an annual basis. And for any single year, you will have several different annals. Often they're copying one another, but it's a bit like having five different newspapers. They're all covering the same story, but not always in the same way. And and you compare the different headlines, that's revealing. Now, if you were a Scottish historian, you would be eating yourself up in envy. They have none. They use the Irish annals as a substitute for the absence of Scottish annals. Astonishing. I, I didn't realise that because I'm conscious that, Francis, you've been looking at annals from other regions of the world, but still the Irish one is unrivaled. Well, it's in, 
in many respects it is, and in other in other respects it's not. So if you if you're interested in in continental Europe, and and you want to make use of annals and chronicles, you'll get plenty of them there, mm. and eventually you'll get a greater density of them. Um, as they're just more recording centers over a greater landmass, you know. But um, if you're interested in the early medieval period, you'll find it very thin there compared to uh, Ireland. Um, if you go to China, of course, you're going to get quite an, an interesting, uh, you know, multi-millennia continuity as well of, of pretty much the same type of, of records. Or this sort of, there's something ele- elementary or, uh, or very persistent about this type of, of historical recording in a society. You put the year down or however you're marking the passage of a year, and then you list events that were deemed to be important. You see that in, in the Maya, you see that in, in, in various cultures in Asia, and um, you see it in the ancient Near East. You know, So it's, it's a really interesting form and pervasive form of, of early historical uh, recording. Okay. So one of the advantages of the Irish records being that we've got a lot of them from a very small area, so a higher density. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, um, if you're if you're looking at continental Europe and you find a flood, um, uh, you don't necessarily know how geographically representative that is um, or a drought even um, across the entirety of the, of the domain you might be interested in. But for Ireland, yes, there's spatial variation in, in the weather. But if there's a very severe drought recorded in, in a Munster analytic source, you can be pretty sure it was probably notably dry in Ulster as well. Maybe not to the same degree or so on, but yeah, that's that's an important point. And you can sort of see Ireland as as this sort of meteorological century post, and that's to borrow a phrase from John Sweeney, actually, sitting in the Atlantic, where a lot of climate action happens. Uh, you know, um, so it's very valuable from a sort of broader perspective. This cl- this climate record from this little point, this little dot in the ocean. Yeah. And you're able to validate some of those records by comparing them to English records. Yes, I mean, this is this principle we talked about earlier about cross-calibrating. Um, um, so there's a lot of uncertainty about the dates of some of these events, and you're trying to pin them down, which exact year is is it. So for England, we have chronicles. They don't cover the same period of time, but we have very good monastic chronicles uh, for the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, we have, as I referred earlier, we have annual prices. So if you have bad weather and a bad harvest, the following year you will have high prices. Um, and so that is a, a, a good a good cross-check. And for England, quite remarkably, we have very, very detailed farm records. So I put together a two 200-year chronology of grain yields for each of the main grains, wheat, rye, barley, and oats. And we can see what their yield was in a given year. And that will show up, for example, years when all four of your harvests, all four of your main grain crops failed, and then you really are in a mess, and you get two of those in a row, you're into a famine. So you can, all of that information, this is what we've done in our paper, is to put the the English chronologies up against the Irish chronologies. I'll give you one little event um, where the Irish, the dating of the Irish chronologies is a little uncertain, and it's an event that happened in a single day, so it wouldn't show up in in a dendrochronology or anything like that, and this is the famous Moore's Day wind of, of uh, January, 15th of January 1362. And this is referred to uh, at various dates in the Irish annals, but is known exactly which day in which year it was in England. In England, it did a huge amount of damage. It blew the spire off Norwich Cathedral, and it did similar damage over here in Ireland. 
So you can pin that event down precisely. The uncertainty in the Irish annals is resolved by the certainty in the English chronicles. Excellent. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the comparison was, and people I think have been reluctant to do push a comparison between the sort of English economic material um, and what was happening in Ireland too far. So one of our things we set out, I guess, when we were deciding we would, we would write this paper was to try and see how much we could actually use that comparison. Um, and we found, yeah, there's a, there's a pretty good match. But one of the interesting things is when that match then breaks down, mm. you know, beginning in the 14th century and, and then especially thereafter. Um, so it's a breakdown, it's a persistent breakdown. Well, there things are not moving so much in lockstep between either climatically and or socially, economically between Ireland and England. You know, after this, what Bruce has called this great transition period in the 14th century. So it's not just about establishing these matches, which is very interesting, but also when they start to deteriorate. That's telling you something very profound as well. Now, what that exactly is, <laughs> is, is, is then the challenge to try and uh, understand. So what interesting new insights emerge from your study? Well, I'll, I'll give you the, one of them. Uh, is, I don't think it's new. Um, 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 and uh, uh, There's a recent book done by economic historians about the history of famine in Europe. And um, uh, famine is a subject which is only beginning now to be addressed seriously by economic historians. Not unusually, one of the leading exponents of this is Cormac O'Groder, who's written about the greatest, the great Irish famine of the 19th century. And it's been very difficult for many of those historians to push the story of famine back before the modern period because of the written evidence. And what we've been able to put together is um, all the references to famine, food shortage, heavy mortalities of livestock that are in the annals. And so this now extends the chronology of um, scarcity, um, starvation and so forth in Ireland back across this period. And what, what comes out of it very clearly is that famine was a permanent problem in late medieval Ireland. And it was a permanent problem whether there were very few people here or many more people here. A lot of people think that famine is caused by overpopulation, but we found that there were periods of famine when the problem is too few people. It's underpopulation and underdevelopment. Now, famine correlates strongly with lack of development and poverty. So the recurrence of, of, of scarcity, of famine, scarcity escalating into famine, you can have a scarcity, we won't necessarily lead to a famine, but repeatedly, according to the annals, and the analysts don't tell us exactly what they mean when they say there was a famine throughout Ireland. We, we, they don't say exactly how, what they mean by that word. But the implication is that people are, are starving and dying of starvation and starvation-related diseases. So this is telling us that Ireland is poor and is underdeveloped throughout this period and never escapes for very long from the fear and the threat of famine. So if the analysts aren't saying what was causing the famine, are you able to reconstruct that from other records? Yeah, I mean, sometimes they will tell us that, you know, there was weather and or conflict um, at the same time. Like, it's very interesting. They may actually put these together in the same sentence. There was these things prevailing. And you can then, well, maybe there was a link. Very occasion, then they will actually make a causal statement and say this famine or, arose because of 
this or that phenomena. Usually they just maybe put it in the same sentence without actually any causal statement or maybe in consecutive sentences. Um, but yeah, you can go to the trees as well, for example, and you can go to the ice cores for volcanic eruptions and you can see there's a link and uh, not in every case. You wouldn't expect um, every volcanic eruption, first of all, to, to induce some sort of major climate anomaly. Um, just because of the complexities of the system. And then even if it did, you wouldn't necessarily expect every one of those to lead to a famine. It may induce scarcity. Um, there is some resilience built in to, to the system. People did survive on the island, after all, for uh, throughout this period where I've been entirely wiped off. Um, uh, but you can see it enough when you look over a large time span statistically that this is, this is a repeated pattern where you have this sort of climate forcing, then you have this response. And other responses as well, like increased violence. Um, and then especially after um, the, the 1300s, so beginning from then and then into the 1400s, 1500s, there's a link between plague outbreaks and, and these sudden climatic anomalies. Let's just pick up on the volcanoes for a moment. How does a volcano erupting thousands of kilometres away cause a famine in Ireland? Well, I mean, you, you start with the, there are all these complexities in the climate response to begin, but ba basically you have to have a large injection of, of sulfate into the stratosphere usually. And once that's up there, you, there, you've got these pretty strong winds and it will, zonal winds first will circle, circulate globally east to west within a few weeks and within a few months it should reach um, the poles, boat poles if it was a tropical eruption, say. And this, uh, these sulfate aerosols, once they're formed up there, they're very light, they can persist there for a few years and they got this property of, of being able to scatter incoming solar radiation back to space. So less heat energy will or radiation will get to the Earth's surface and that's how you get a primary impact, a cooling impact. All sorts of other things then happen <laughs> um, to, to either amplify that impact in a given region or minimize it. And this depends upon where and how that sulfate circulated, even the size of the, the aerosol particles, how much water was injected as well, and other particles were injected along with the sulfate. So you have warming for some regions as well after eruptions. But the, usually a big sulfur-rich tropical eruption will give you, on average, if you averaged over the globe, uh, a cooling. And Ireland seems, particularly in this part of the Northeast Atlantic, it seems, at least when you look at the, uh, all of the 60 or so odd severe cold winters reported in the annals, they frequently line up with these ice, totally independent ice core based dates of big eruptions. So we know that there's a winter response, at least here, um, or there has been persistently, um, thanks to the annals and this combination with the ice core evidence. Okay, so there are two questions, I'm deviating from your script, I'm afraid, but <laughs> there are two questions I'd like to pick up from there. One would be, if you, do, would you like to give us an example of an eruption that had a big impact? And the other question will be about whether it's only cooling that triggers the, the famines. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have an additional point I want to make about this, because I okay. want to pick up on something that, that, that Frank glossed over. I'm constantly having to pick Frank up because he's a modest man. You see, So he's had a major research funding to look at the relationships between um, extreme weather, harvest failure and violence. There's a big interest into whether when you get climate anomalies, how do human societies react? And do climate anomalies cause an increase in upsurge in violence. And this is one of the things that comes out very clearly uh, from our papers. The, anal the analysts 
there's a lot of violence recorded in the annals of, in, in various forms. You know, wholesale, wholesale Scottish invasion, wars between Irish kings, homicides, um, uh, violent robberies and so forth. You get all of that in the, in the annals. And what you find is um, you have to, if you think, what is the court? Why do you get a famine after bad weather? But there are lots of intervening factors because humans is how humans react to the shortage. And a common human reaction to shortage, if you don't have what you need to feed your family, you take it from somebody else. So felonries go right up. You see this in the Great Irish Famine in the 19th century. Crimes against property escalate. People steal to avoid starvation and to avoid their nearest and dearest starving. Now, if you have the armed might, you also go out and rob and and use violence. And, And what happens in Ireland is... Scarcity provokes violent responses, and violent responses often lead to the destruction of storage facilities, the discouragement of people to store. Storage is how you cope with shortage. This is the story of Joseph and Pharaoh in the Bible. So you store the surpluses against the shortages. So if you have a, a society where the shortages are producing violent responses, and the violent res- responses destroy the welfare mechanisms the charity, the barns, the storage, the mills, all of those things, it locks you into a vicious circle that the inevitable response to shortage is more violence. And it, and it locks you into this state of underdevelopment in which shortage and famine are recurrent phenomena. You can't invest and save and store your way out of your predicament. So this is one of the very interesting reactions that, that, that and it comes out very clear in the paper and, and Frank was able to do a very clever piece of analysis to show that not unusually extreme weather produces violent responses and that then leads, it locks you into this vicious circle of, of, of shortage and scarcity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There can also be social issues that lead to the shortages like scorched earth policies, tactics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And political consequences. So so, um, one of the clear knock-on consequences of the English invasion of Scotland was the Scottish invasion of Ireland in 1315. They didn't have good weather forecasting in those days, so they just happened to coincide with three years of truly terrible weather and the great northern European famine. And so if you have um, terrible weather bad harvests and marauding Scottish armies altogether, <laughs> it's not a good place to be. And did that affect all regions of Ireland or was it limited? The invasion? The, well, the effects around the 13... 13- the, the Great Northern European 13- Famine? Mm. It, it, uh, right the way across Europe, north of the Alps and south of the Baltic. I was caught up in in very, very abnormal weather. It's what's become known as the Dantean anomaly. And it's a a short-term, very pronounced climate anomaly. And the worst year of it was 1316. And that year, you'll find, will drop out quite a lot of chronologies, historical chronologies and natural um, scientific chronologies. So it was a very abnormal time in terms of global circulation patterns. Yeah, you even see it as uh, sea surface temperature anomalies. Um, you know, if you look at these uh, these clamshells that Bruce mentioned earlier from the North Sea, um, at least in one of the chronologies I, we looked at, 
um, this period around the 1310s and 1320s is the warmest in the entire record that they reconstructed. Whatever was happening and whatever mix of factors were driving this Dantean anomaly and all this wet weather over, over the land masses, the North Sea was definitely anomalously warm, like really, really starkly. And um, that has to have played into it at least to some degree. So the North Sea warms and what happens in Ireland? A lot of wet weather. Wet weather, so we get more yeah, water. Yeah. The key thing in Ireland is is what's going on in the North Atlantic. The sea surface temperatures start uh, to swing um, and you have periods, bouts of warmer uh, North Atlantic temperatures and then bouts of cold in North Atlantic temperatures and the, the and the variations get more and more pronounced. They be, they begin to become apparent in the 1290s and they're very apparent by the 1340s. And when you have these warm temperatures, the, the winds coming into Ireland off the Atlantic are absolutely laden with moisture. And they come in over Ireland and they sweep in over Britain and then right into Northern Europe, north of the Alps. And, it, and, and you get three consecutive years of, of, of very bad weather. If it, you know, when, it, when we have summers like this now, I think it was just like reliving the past, really, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are back in, back in the 1310s all over again, consecutive wet summers. But if you're dependent upon the harvest of that year, and this happens two years in a row, you're screwed. Yeah. I'll come back to plague, but I'll pick up on the, I think this would be a good point to pick up on the types of weather. So it wasn't just colder or wetter conditions that affected the the amount of food available and, and triggered famines, was it? No, I mean, you can, one of the things I, I thought was interesting and I didn't necessarily expect it was if you were to, to look at years of of drought conditions that you can probably infer from the Irish oaks when they grow very poorly. Um, and you just take those dates um, and array them and just say calculate the number of, of average reports of cattle raiding or, or other forms of violence in the same years. You see that go way up, you know, according to the annals. Um, and you see it go up even when they're not reporting the weather conditions themselves. So they don't mention there's a drought, but there's more violence. And that happens not in every year, but it happens repeatedly and enough so that this is beyond what you would consider to have happened just by chance. You know, there's enough of this repetition that this is something systematic and it happens um, basically throughout the period. This is one of the things as well. I, I had sort of expected that, yes, look, society will, is, is adaptable. Um, and there is resilience, as I said, because the people did survive on the island, but um, they clearly don't ever get to a stage where they've nailed it and, and things like a uh, big drought are not, are, 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 are very well handled. You know, there are periods where they, they may have provoked less violence, but there seems to be a consistent response. If you divide it up by century, you still see this pretty much every century happening. There's no century where they've nailed it totally. And they've, you do see mechanisms where the annals are reporting that the king went out and tried to restore order or um, the, the abbot went out with the relics of saints and tried to get everyone to behave. Um, but they're, ba- they're more band-aids, I think. They, they never, they're more like mitigation mechanisms when the, the violence has already begun and not adaptations to prevent that violence from beginning in the first place. Um, so that's very interesting, this just persistent vulnerability. Um, maybe waxing and waning, but persistence, still, it's pretty much always there throughout a thousand years or so. Uh, Fanks talked about adaptability and societies are adaptable. 
And um, Irish agriculture in this period was very adaptable. Um, if it gets cooler and wetter, you grow less wheat and you grow more oats. Um, uh, you um, have more grass and less arable and keep more animals. You, you change your mixed farming mix. Um, so that's much more adaptable than if you're locked into paddy rice cultivation and the monsoon fails. You know, and so Western European agriculture was quite adaptable. I think the thing that I would like to stress that that struck me about all of this is not whether um, it gets hotter absolutely or colder absolutely. It's the it's the um, you can adapt if you have time. If change is gradual, you can adapt to gradual change. But when the change is coming thick and fast and it's cold this year and hot next year and dry this year, wet next year, it's very hard to read what direction your adaption should be taking. And there are periods when, uh, right in the middle of our period, we have a period of global climate reorganization. And when that happens, you get an increased incidence of, of instability and extremes. And there are periods when, in, uh, right there, uh, in, really in the 14th century above all, the instability becomes very pronounced. And that is really difficult for society to adapt to. And when that coincides independently with political instability and, and, and major warfare, it's, you're into an impossible scenario. So you touch on a number of different events that were quite sudden. Do you want to... to which of these were the most interesting from your perspective? All of them. <laughs> OK. <laughs> uh, uh, it's the, the key thing is the interaction between a number of different things. And there's, there's a certain thing in, in history. It's called bad luck. Uh, we've referred to one piece of bad luck. You have the great, the weather that creates the great northern European famine and an invasion by a marauding Scottish army. That is really unlucky. Okay? If that also happens when English power in Ireland is on the wane and unravelling, and when international trade and commerce into which the Irish economy is, uh, is, is plugged in is failing, you've got a number of things going on uh, for independent reasons, but at the same time. Now, we see all of this today, don't we? We have COVID, we have climate change, we have Brexit, we have the protocol in Northern Ireland. Certain political okay. leaders. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> where all these things, they're not, they're related in the sense they're all happening at the same time and we have to steer a course as a society through all these these things that are going on. And so it's these interactions and conjunctions which I think are the really important things. We shouldn't think of this as one cause and one effect. There are several different causes happening at the same time with their different effects and they're interacting with each other. Plagues were also a major issue through this time. Is there any link between plagues and climate? Yes. <laughs> we, have, we have two big plagues. <clears throat> and the first one comes out of this year we've already mentioned, 1316, and that's the Great uh, Northern Cattle Plague. And uh, we first see it erupting in the worst year of the Great Northern European Famine, and it's recorded in Bohemia, and it's almost certainly Rinderpest, so it's a viral infection. We all know now how viral infections are spread and how they turn into major pandemics. And, and so this starts spreading in 1316. Um, 
it's encouraged by cold, wet weather, which is what you have in 1316, and then it spreads by biological processes of viral spread um, right the way across continental Europe, gets to England in 1319, gets to Ireland in 1321, and Ireland is a pastoral economy with a lot of cattle, and it is absolutely devastating. You're talking about losing well over half of your national cattle herd. Um, and that plague before it erupts in Bohemia had probably originated further east in Central Asia and this we don't know uh, we don't have enough information from the historical records about its back history before it emerges in 1316 but in 1316 it comes out of the interactions between um, um, extreme weather ecological stress and then you get a biological response and then you then and then the biology takes on its own life and so it then spreads by biological mechanisms of viral spread so that is where you have a number of things interacting um, and then the second plague is the most famous one of the world which is the black death and that emerges during a major global climate ano anomaly um, in the 1340s. Um, it's not entirely known what is causing that anomaly, but it's very apparent in tree rings right the way around planet Earth. And right out of that climate anomaly, we get the emergence of plague. And the first uh, accurately documented outbreak is 1346, slap bang in the middle of this anomaly. Um, and then it begins to spread and within six years it has killed 35 million Europeans and it spread into um, North Africa, large parts of Asia and it, that really does change the course of history in very significant ways. And people tend to study disease or they tend to study climate and the two are intimately interrelated. Uh, and the most dangerous thing about climate, you change the climate, you change the ecosystem, you change all the plants, the animals, the microbes, the pathogens. And all those things get changed if you change the climate. And, it, and, and, then, and then humans are agents of the spread of these infections because humans put together international systems of trade and commerce and administration. And so Ireland is totally linked in to an international trading economy that connects Ireland with China by the 13th century. This is often not appreciated. This is an internationally interlinked economy. And so the diseases then circulate because of the, the human linkages. So all of these things are going on together. It makes it complicated and incredibly interesting. And they had recurrent bouts of plague after, apart from those two big events? Well, that's yeah one of the more interesting things as well, is that by the time you're in the 1400s, you just get to see the... The annals have this sort of quasi-decadal reporting of plague outbreaks. And it just keeps coming back and back and back and back. And um, whether it was as it's debated, you know, whether the, the plague then was endemic in parts of Europe. So it was still there was always still small reservoirs or whether uh, it was reintroduced over and over from the, the east and spread across Europe time and time again. Um, and... Actually, you, you sort of see these two camps being a little bit opposed, but these two things aren't mutually exclusive, in fact. Um, you can have a reservoir and you can have reintroductions too. Um, and the evidence that we looked at suggests that probably both things are going on. If you looked at very severe cold, cold summers, as, as identified by tree rings, European tree rings, you'll see that the plague, uh, reporting of plague incidents across Europe will go up in those years. 
but it will also then spike about 10 years afterwards again. As if there are several processes going on, there's reintroduction and there's a, a spike as, as uh, in in the in the year of an extreme event within Europe, you know, either that's causing people to move in search of food or, or lowering uh, their their uh, immune systems as, as they just don't have as much to eat or lower quality food and so on. So the, the evidence I think is that there's both both these things happening, and Ireland is included in that. Um, and it's just amazing because how how frequently. The analysts are reporting every decade, more or less, a, b- a big plague outbreak. Sometimes it's also smallpox and so on at the same time. And this is not written into the histories, really, of, of Ireland. You know, It's mentioned when a certain notable person may have died, relevant to the politics of, of a period, but it's not, it's, the, it's not given its own agency, despite how loudly the analysts are actually shouting at historians, basically, um, that this is an important factor in what was happening. In the 12th and 13th centuries in Ireland, if you had an extreme period, a period of extreme weather, and you got bad harvests, well, what you then had to be frightened of was st- not enough food, starvation, and 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 violent attacks by people coming to steal your food. And by the time you get to the late 14th and the 15th century, you have all of that and the additional fear that plague will arrive as well. So it is an it is an an extra thing to be fearful of, and this ca- comes out very clearly in the chronology, that um, that bad harvests following bad weather are not unusually accompanied by plague outbreaks, and and uh, there's a whole lot more work now to be done to disentangle how does this what is the mechanism that is that is causing this. So at the moment, all we can see is is there is a clear chronological association that repeats itself and the annals are really important to bring in this out very clearly but disentangling why this is happening what the mechanisms are that comes next and the tree rings are not just telling you about the occurrence and timing of environmental events they're also telling you something about social dimensions yeah this was really bruce's insight into this paper to use the sort of prevailing oak populations um, as a sort of a, a backdrop to the narrative or a way to structure the narrative. That was entirely Bruce. And so when you look at um, the way that the paper is divided up into different sections, it's about, you know, is this a period of resource abundance, at least in terms of building materials? But it's, you know, how much, how many oaks were growing around Ireland tells you more than just how many oaks were growing around Ireland. It tells you about population indirectly and, and a lot of other economic things as well. So this actually ended up structuring or providing a nice structure for the paper and seemed to play very well into what the analysts were, were telling telling us as well and other sources too. Bruce could say more about this. but One of the advantages of studying geography is you have to study things that seem unrelated but actually are related and you become um, very good at borrowing ideas and insights from one place and applying them somewhere else. So it's kind of frank to say it was my idea. It's actually Mike Bailey's idea, which I stole from him. And in fact, the, and, and I was completely fascinated by a chronology that he put together, which is of the number of available tree ring samples over time. And when he was putting together the Irish oak chronology, he found there were certain periods he couldn't bridge there were no surviving timbers for certain periods and there were big gaps and one of them was over the decades when the black death erupted in the 14th century Um, there was a desperate shortage of datable irish oak timbers and he initially had to use scottish oaks to 
to bridge the gap in the Irish chronology until he got enough Irish um, oaks to do that. So what he found is that the survival of datable oak timbers is not random over time. It's a function of how many oaks were growing. And, and of construction activity by humans and so forth. So we go from a period from 1,000, lots of oaks, not many humans in Ireland. By the early 14th century, not very many oaks and many more humans in Ireland. And then in comes um, warfare, plague, uh, major demographic collapse. The, the population more than halves in the second half of the 14th century. And then the trees stage a comeback and there's tremendous regeneration of oaks. And one of the problems, if you're a historian, you need a chronology. And, and so the chronology of the advance and retreat of oak woodland in Ireland tells you what the humans are doing. Okay, when the, when the humans increase, the trees retreat because humans cut them down. They need the trees to build with, to burn, and they need the land the trees are growing on to grow grain. And when the humans go down, the trees stage a comeback and come back. And so this come, and this... This comes out very, very clearly from the surviving oat samples. Um, and the data was gathered here in Queens by David Brown, who, gave, who was most generous in making the data set available. And that gives us the chronology. And the chronology correlates amazingly with English laborers' wage rates. <laughs> because wage rates are, again, a function of the population. If there are more people, there's more, more labor and the wages go down. After the Black Death, there was a bonanza. If you survived the Black Death, your wage rates went right up because labor was scarce. And so when the trees stage a recovery after the Black Death, the wage rates in England stage a recovery after the Black Death. So, that, so this is a case of two very different types of data telling a similar story. So that gave us the chronology, and that enabled us to make much better sense of what was coming out of the annals, because the annals don't give you that kind of chronology. Fabulous. I'm going to come back to the volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> Francis, of the incident, of the, of the events that um, seem to have been triggered by volcanic eruptions, do any of them stand out in particular? Well, you could be mischievous and say there's, there's been a quite big eruption just before the Black Death in the 14th century that didn't seem to have much of a presence in some earlier ice core records or wasn't taken much notice of, but it happened in 1340, 1341, I think. 1344? 1344, yeah, yeah. It's quite large. Maybe it's too close to the the original appearance of the Black Death in, in Europe, 1346, or, or to be really linked um, but there are lots of other events that I'm, I'm sort of interested in the 1220s now at the moment because there are, and 1230s, there are lots of big volcanic eruptions in this period. Um, some quite major ones. And um, if you look at what the annals are telling you, things are going to hell in Connacht, there's sort of a civil war there. This is almost a period like the, 13, the 1310s, 1330s, where you could say that these, this period, and the annals are telling you it's severe cold, there's famine, and there's warfare, civil war over and over in Connacht, and then the Anglo-Normans come in and compound things or take advantage of the situation. This is perhaps another few decades where you could say there's a conjunction of climate and and and, and social events that has a, a, a more profound you know, effect that you could identify as an historian in the decades long afterwards, um, just like in maybe the 1310s um, with the Great Famine and the Bruce invasions. 
Um, that lines up very nicely in the 1320s, or the 1220s and the 1230s. Um, we don't know where these eruptions were, you know. Um, we just see them in the ice course. I've been trying my best to find out. Yeah, we need you basically to identify these. I'm going There's to a big one in, in the 1236 or 1230. It's massive, really. It's mm. probably a tropical yeah. eruption. I'm going to come in on this because and the, the biggest eruption of, of all is the one um, Mount Samalas in Indonesia in 1257, completely ignored by the Irish analysts. Doesn't show up at all in the Irish annals. And, um, and it is the one that really leaps out of the ice cores with the biggest sulfate signature of all for thousands and thousands of years. You think that would have a big impact, but it doesn't show up at all as having a big impact. And the two that may have a big impact, the, the scientists have ignored. So one of them is the 1344 eruption that comes right bang in the middle of this major climate anomaly and may be driving it and forcing it to some extent. And nobody knows what the eruption was. And it doesn't leap out of the ice cores. So the, the scientists have not leapt upon it and analyzed it and, and pinned it down. So, there's, so I'm very curious about 1344. There was also one um, which has been totally ignored um, in New Zealand. Zealand in I think 1315 that may be a factor in the weather anomaly that drives the great northern European famine but that it just doesn't feature so so some of the some of the volcanoes that, that coincide with significant historical events have not been studied and some of the volcanoes that have been studied don't line up with significant historical events yeah <laughs> That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're not playing ball. Medieval historians are not out of business. <laughs> There's lots to be sorted out here. Okay. Well, that was going to bring me on to the, the, the final question, really, which is what next? You've already touched on the fact that we need to do more research to look into the relationship between plague and climate. What other areas do you think you can see us going forward in? Uh, I would like to see what is difficult for a lot of academics. I would like to see much more interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary work and collaboration. Uh, instead of people just staying narrowly within their disciplines, I would like to see the people, the biologists who study plague linking up with the paleoclimatologists who study past climate change, linking up with the social and economic historians who work with historical records. Because um, the, these events, uh, all of these different approaches and disciplines and types of evidence are needed to be brought to bear upon, uh, upon, the, upon these events. Um, um, here in this department where we're sitting, there is wonderful work been done on bioarchaeology. So the, annal the annals, they are totally elitist. They tell you about the deaths of posh people, the privileged few, and not the humble majority. And what has come out of uh, bioarchaeological analysis of skeletons here in Ireland has been revelatory. I know of no historical source that will tell you about the diets and the health and life expectancy, the physical injuries experienced by ordinary Irish men and women, adults and children that's coming out of the bioarchaeology. And I think that is really going to add completely new insights into the, the point we've already made about scarcity, violence and famine as a, as a recurrent phenomenon for centuries here in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, we have to go this way and into interdisciplinarity and we have to be you know universities have spoken for decades about promoting this this type of research but they don't often hire 
along these lines. Um, so you can easily fall between two camps or more and you'll you'll just be washed out of academia eventually. Um, hopefully that's changing a little bit now. But um, as we go on and do this, you know, the, 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 this Bruce brought up earlier, this uh, this problem of dating historically with the ice cores, and that was a failure of interdisciplinarity. Um, certain ice core workers uh, who had basically obviously been trying to date their cores and had gone to historical records and had identified the dates of major eruptions in them, and um, such as Elja in, in, in Iceland. And there were two possible dates for that proposed uh, 934 or 938 or 939 um, and they were based upon historical sources or re- certain readings of those and they chose 934 and tuned their counting of the ice core chronologies accordingly but the evidence is actually much more and it always was to a story and I think much more in favor of 939 and so when you it, it, so it, it, it turned out to be the case that when you end up you can independently use evidence like uh, these solar proton events and their signals in the ice cores. And if you use those, um, it would realign the Elgia volcanic signal of this this big sulfate signal to 939-ish. So, um, but if there had been greater interdisciplinarity at the beginning, an historian would probably have said, no, it's not, it should, this should be 939, not 934. And we might have avoided decades of incorrect uh, ice core chronology. Um, now it's not incorrect with seven years or so uh, that to the extent that it stopped a lot of work but to the sort of work where you're looking at annual resolutions you're looking at very fine scale climate responses or human responses that was impeded for decades because of this this decision and that was a failure of interdisciplinarity not to criticize any particular ice core worker but just the general approach and the siloing of, of disciplines yeah yeah. And there was, for time, the, the suggestion that the eruption continued between 934 and 939. To try and accommodate <laughs> these two dates. Yeah, 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 exactly. The key thing, you learn this with age, don't ever be dogmatic about the past. Keep an open mind and be willing to accept new evidence and shift your ground accordingly. You, you know, there's no loss of face if a you know uh, if if a if a better date for an event comes along, then you have to re- rethink the sequence of, of 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 cause and effect. There's no problem with that, um, unless you're unless you've you you've nailed your colours to a particular date. Yeah. You know, so never do that. Uh, you know, keep, keep an open mind, and and be willing to take on board new information and new evidence and new approaches. Yeah, so flexibility is key to resilience. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) Adaptability. Adaptability. (laughs) Okay, well, Bruce Campbell, Francis Ludlow, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Climate and Society in Ireland is available from the Royal Irish Academy and in all good bookshops. Thank you for listening. Mm